Warning. Though this podcast covers topics of the strange and the unusual, we present the show without censoring any adult themes or language. So, if you are somebody who is easily disturbed or triggered by graphic descriptions of violence, sexual abuse, torture, or murder, please protect your mental health by sitting this episode out. Listener discretion is advised. On a dark wooded road, you wander through the night. You're familiar with your surroundings as you step so surely on. But tonight is different. The snap of a twig catches you off guard, and you begin to hear something. It's low at first, but there's there's definitely something there. You know you can hear it. Though the fear within you courses through your being, screaming for you to run and find safety. There's something else there, inside, Inside. compelling your curiosity. Something inside craves to to know know more. You're You're listening listening to whispers whispers in the night. Hello and welcome to Whispers in the Night, a podcast that takes a dive into the things that we fear most through fact, fiction, and folklore. My name is Sang Pang Duongdet. I'm an actor, a writer, and I'm also a paranormal researcher and investigator of 14 years-ish. And most importantly, I am the host of this show, so thank you so much for tuning in. I'm glad you're here. Now, in this show, we cover topics of the strange and the unusual, the paranormal, the unexplained, and we'll even dive into some true crime. I usually like to stick around the Midwest with my topics because it's what I know best, it's where I'm from, but I'll branch out from time to time to check out particularly interesting and mysterious cases throughout the world. Now, before we get into anything, I just wanted to mention that the show has taken on a new format. For longtime listeners tuning in, I've decided to split my episodes into two parts every month. Uh, This way I can balance out my workload and be a little bit more consistent with my episode releases in the future. I think, honestly, the biggest killer of my motivation in the past was that I took on such a big project and, you know, trying to push out episodes as fast as I can. Just, it ended up becoming overwhelming and it, it just didn't work out. I'm also going to do away with releasing episodes under any kind of specific season. So from here on out, I think I'm just going to release episodes just without any umbrella at all. Just each case, one at a time. As far as my episode breakdown is going to go, in part one of every episode, which I'll be releasing on, let's say, the first Friday of every month, I will be discussing the headlining topic for that episode, breaking down timelines of events, talking about any kind of legends or folklore that might be involved, you know, um, that, that kind of stuff. Part two, which will be released halfway through the month, you know, probably the third Friday of every month, will be where we get the audio drama, uh, the fiction involved. Basically, you'll still get what my episodes used to offer, just twice a month rather than one big episode at the beginning of every month. I'll also be releasing extras as they come. I have been brainstorming um, some ideas, I was thinking maybe some behind the scenes, but for sure what you can still look forward to are things like my true paranormal story. 
since we have all of that out of the way, uh, in tonight's episode, we talk about an organized cult. Uh, Now, this gang terrorized people from the Chicago area in the early 80s, leaving a trail of trauma, mutilation, and death in their wake. What cult, might you ask? Well, maybe you've heard of them. They're called the Ripper Crew, but you know, they're also known as the Chicago Rippers. All of that and more, though, after a quick break. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. (laughs) Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yes, sounds like someone fell. Gotcha! This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! (laughs) Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Hey, welcome back. I'm Sang Peng Duangdet, and this is Whispers in the Night. Um, Before I get into anything, I think that you should definitely check out that new horror audio drama Stay the Night, which I just shared a promo for. They're actually pretty incredible. Uh, I I love the audio engineering that went into uh, the first two episodes that have actually been released. And I I just have to say that it's fantastic. Um, But also, if you're like me and you don't want to wait for the rest of the episodes to come out, you can actually get all 11 episodes, which are available on Apple Podcasts for $4.99. And, uh, like I mentioned before the break, tonight we will be talking about the Ripper Crew, a cult of murderers that ignited a wave of terror to several women, many of which were determined to be sex workers in the Chicago area during the early 80s. Now, who were the Ripper Crew, and why did they do the heinous acts that would forever stain Illinois history? Even years later, One member of this murderous gang has managed to be released from prison. But why? I think that the only way that I can best explain who they were and why they decided to begin their crime spree would be to start at the very beginning of their reign of terror and bloodlust. Alright, here we go. It is May 23rd of 1981. 26-year-old single mother, Linda Sutton, is out walking in an area near Chicago's famous Wrigley Stadium. You know, the Wrigley Stadium. Um, It's May 23rd, 1982, in a very heavily touristed area, when Linda seemingly vanishes in broad daylight. It was believed that Sutton, who was a local prostitute, worked that heavily trafficked area in an attempt to raise money for her two children at home. While working her designated strip, Sutton seemingly disappears without a trace, and unfortunately there are no witnesses to describe to the police what happened or even how it went down. Sutton's family reaches out to authorities to report a missing person when she never returns home that evening, or even any days to follow for that matter. Only a few weeks after, on June 2nd, outside of a Br'er Rabbit motel, 
uh, and if you don't know what that is, a Brer Rabbit Motel, they, they're kind of notorious. It's a motel that is known by the locals as a hot spot for drugs, for prostitution and partying, as well as other shady and illegal activities. Anyway, just a few weeks later on June 2nd, Sutton's body would be discovered. Now, police would be led to the scene after complaints of a very strong and foul odor that seemed to be coming from the rear of the building in this open field area. And expecting to come across the remains of an animal, you know, possibly a deer, the police were shocked at what they found. Sutton's body was found severely decomposed in a very, very advanced state of decay with handcuffs still locked to her wrist. She was face down um, with a gag still found within her mouth. The apparent victim of imprisonment and murder in which authorities would confirm that she had also been raped, she'd been tortured, stabbed. At first glance, her remains appear to be at least a few weeks old, but at the time of the discovery, despite the state of her remains, it would be determined that she was only dead for maybe about three days. Variables such as temperature and exposure to the elements as well as animals would be the reason that the condition of her body was as it was when she had been found. Upon investigation, two shocking pieces of information would emerge following the discovery of her body. Um, number one, Linda had not been robbed. There was an, um, an amount of cash uh, that was found still tucked away in the ankle of a sock that actually was still on her foot, which ruled out robbery as a motive. And number two, both of Linda's breasts had been completely severed and were nowhere to be found. The large wounds created from this amputation, along with multiple stab wounds that were found, they are what were believed to have sped up the decomposition process altogether. Alright, we're just going to flash forward almost a year later. It's May 15th, 1982. 21-year-old Lorraine, also known as Lori Borowski, goes missing shortly after arriving bright and early to open up at her place of work where she was employed as a secretary. Now, she was expected to be the first to arrive that morning, but Lorraine's co-workers came to find that the office was silent. Neighbors told police that they saw Miss Borowski leave her apartment here at the Elmhurst Terrace Complex at about 8 o'clock Saturday morning. Miss Borowski is employed as a secretary receptionist at the Remax Real Estate Company, which is located only about three blocks from her apartment. Lorraine was to have opened the office on Saturday morning, but her keys, some cosmetics, and a pair of her shoes were found strewn in front of the firm. Friends and associates of the missing woman have been unable to shed any light on the mystery. Moving forward, on May 29th of 1982, uh, reported missing only two weeks after Lorraine Borowski, was a 30-year-old woman by the name of Shui Mock. According to her brother, Shui and he had been arguing in the vehicle while he was driving both of them home from their family's restaurant, which is where they both worked. When the argument heated up to a point where Shui's brother decided to pull the vehicle over and kick her out, forcing her to walk the rest of the way home. They had pulled over near Hanover Park, and just as Shui's brother was speeding off into the distance, she was standing there isolated and alone. 
Unfortunately, she would never return home that evening. June 13, 1982. In a very strange twist of fate, a prostitute by the name of Angel York survives an attack. She claims that, while working her block, a red van pulled up beside her where she was propositioned by a man who called himself John. Upon entering his van, York is actually grabbed and handcuffed by multiple men. The men repeatedly rape her. She claims that she was told that, in exchange for mercy from these guys, she would have to slash her own breast to satisfy them. And as you can probably imagine, desperate to survive and to escape, she, she abides, and she brings this blade, I'm sure, in a trembling hand up to her chest, and she slashes as she's commanded. Almost as in a, a frenzy of some sort, one man within the vehicle grabs the blade that's in her hand and he plunges it even deeper into her chest, mutilating her breast completely. The same man then masturbates into her gaping, bloody wound as she squirms and struggles and fails to escape. And once he's satisfied, he and the other men in the vehicle hold her down and they duct tape her wound shut. Then, without a word, they kick her from the vehicle before peeling away into the night. After this traumatic incident, Angel is able to provide physical descriptions of her attackers. She describes that the van they drove is red. Um, she's also able to describe a roach clip that was hanging from the rearview mirror. And uh, she described in detail what it looked like as well as how it was decorated with feathers. Unfortunately though, this early in the case, the information that Angel was able to provide that should have cracked this case open, it, it failed to provide any leads for authorities investigating the case altogether. August 28, 1982. Sandra Delaware, another prostitute from the Chicago area, is found dead near a river. Like the other victims, her body was found with her left breast completely severed. Police would say that her cause of death was actually asphyxiation, in which they determined that her killer, or killers in this case, used her own bra to do. September 8th, 1982. 30-year-old marketing executive Rose Davis was taken in broad daylight and murdered. She is later found dead from apparent hatchet wounds and she's found in an alley in what is known as the Gold Coast neighborhood that very same day. September 11th of 1982, Carol Papas, the wife of a Chicago Cubs pitcher named Milt Papas, goes missing while shopping one afternoon. It is suspected that she is the victim of the same perpetrators responsible for the same streak of terror as the recent victims, but it isn't confirmed at the time. At this point in the case, Despite the information gathered, detectives working on this case are baffled as to who is committing these violent acts or what the motives might be surrounding them. And there's so limited an amount of information at all that police have that they're unable to suggest any kind of definitive body count. September 30th, 1982. Shui Mok's mangled and mutilated body is finally found and it's determined that the cause of death was due to a severe skull fracture. 
October 6, 1982, Rafael Teredo and Alberto Rosario would be the victims of an apparent drive-by shooting. Unfortunately, Teredo would remain the only victim in this long timeline of events that would be male. Rosario, however, would survive. That very same day, a 22-year-old prostitute by the name of Beverly Washington would be found near death, but very much still alive, along one of Chicago's many railroad track systems near Humboldt Park. Like the many incidents before, Beverly would be found with her left breast amputated. Her right breast, though not amputated, had been severely wounded. And upon investigation, it would be revealed that Washington, too, had also been raped by her attackers. Only a few days later, though, on October 10th, Lorraine Borowski, who, if you can recall, she was the second uh, documented victim in this case who went missing outside of her place of employment, well, she would be found. Her body would be found, discovered in the progressive stages of decomposition in Clarendon Hills Cemetery after nearly five months of missing. It is later determined that she had been raped as well, and then later murdered with an axe in a nearby motel. Through many interviews with the surviving Beverly Washington, authorities would obtain more information regarding the description of her assailants, and more about that red van that she had been abducted into, and one more piece of crucial information that might crack this case wide open. A location. According to Washington's statements and descriptions, police were able to track a group of men who matched her claims to a motel located in an area near where the bodies of Linda Sutton and Lorraine Borowski had been found. And that motel would be the Br'er Rabbit Motel that I had mentioned before. And this search would lead investigators to find four men. Robin Gecht, Edward Spritzer, Thomas Cocorelius, and also Andrew Cocorelius. But who were these men? Guess what? <laughs> I'm going to fill you in on all of that, I promise, after yet another break. Stay with us. Hello Lemur, this is Shane here from the Lemur team and this cast is diving into what is social audio. Social audio is a remarkably new term and a completely new genre. Unlike podcasting, which is a monologue where the host talks and you listen with no interaction, with social audio, the listener can instantly interact and talk directly with the podcast creator or cast creator via voice comments. This helps to spark real social engagement, real conversations and real relationships. This authenticity can be seriously lacking in other forms of social media. Social audio is at the embryonic stage of growth, similar to when social media in general first appeared on the scene. As it stands, not many people understand or know anything about social audio, which is an exciting new frontier of interaction. Social audio is the next evolution of social media into voice and the next evolution of podcasting into a social environment, whereby fans can interact and engage with their favorite podcasters via voice and conversation. As the podcast market 
continues to grow and voice-enabled technology becomes more dominant in smart devices and in people's homes, social audio will become a real player in the overall social media space. If you're listening to this cast outside of Lemur, please do download Lemur, set up a profile and get involved in social audio today. Police say the investigation snowballed after Area 5 detectives stopped this red van registered to Robin Gecht. Police had been searching for the 1975 Dodge van after a woman claimed that she had been picked up by a man in the vehicle who raped and mutilated her. That led to the arrest of Gecht, Edward Spritzer, and Andy Kokorilis. Authorities say the three are suspects in more than a dozen Chicago area slains. Okay, we're back. You're listening to Whispers in the Night. I'm saying Peng Duong Dead, and we're just going to jump right back into the story. So, just two weeks after Beverly Washington had been found alive but severely injured, the information that she was able to provide the police led to the arrest of a, a then 28 year old man by the name of Robin Gecht. Now, police also suspected Gecht as the man responsible for the recent attack on yet another woman by the name of Cynthia Smith. Within custody, authorities were able to learn a little bit about this man who appeared to have come from a troubled past. Even coming to learn that when Gecht was younger, he had been implicated in the molestation of his younger sister. Neighbors described Gecht and his wife quiet people who kept to themselves. We knew he was a little nuts, but we didn't suspect he would do anything like this. That's not the same person that was here. Okay, it's like two different people, a Jekyll and Hyde, if you Gecht, who worked on and off as an electrician, also shared his home with two of his helpers, Edward Spritzer and Andrew Corcoralis. The news that the three men are suspected in up to 17 murders has sent a wave of fear through the homes where Gecht was invited to do odd jobs. Most neighbors refused to talk about Gecht on camera. They said they didn't want to get involved. Those who did talk say that the close-knit neighborhood may be slower to welcome newcomers the next time. Police were also able to learn that Gecht had been employed by a company by the name of PDM Contractors. PDM, which stands for Painting, Decorating, and Maintenance, was a construction business established by none other than John Wayne Gacy, the man known by many as the killer clown and who was also responsible for murdering at least, at least, 33 men from 1972 to 1978, and hiding their bodies beneath the crawl space underneath his house. The horrible truth to suburban contractor John Gacy's rambling statements to police last week is becoming more and more evident with each passing day. Six more bodies unearthed from the basement crawl space of Gacy's Norwood Park Township home today, bringing to 15 the number found there since Friday. Those officers not at the scene are gathering dental records and x-rays of teenaged boys missing from the Chicago area since 1974. They're also combing payroll information from Gacy's contracting business and contacting former employees to make sure they're all alive. Though the police were able to connect Robin Gecht to the Ripper killings throughout the area, they unfortunately had no solid evidence to charge him for any of them. And soon after, on October 26th, Gecht would be able to make bail, and he was released from police custody. The man that authorities knew in their hearts was responsible for the string of terrifying events 
was somehow now free to once again roam the streets of Chicago, and there was honestly just nothing that they could do about it. But that isn't where the story ends, though. Their search brought them to speak with the manager, who was able to detail a list of complaints that were given to him by other tenants regarding that room where Gecht and his cohorts had rented. The manager was also able to give them something much more valuable, something that they could use to their advantage. Information on two of the other men involved with Robin Gecht, brothers by the name of Thomas and Andrew Cocorelius. You see, according to the manager of the motel, the Cocorelius brothers had left a forwarding address in case they would receive any mail during their stay. And the address was deemed useful too. When the police arrived, they honestly found themselves face-to-face with Thomas Cocorelius. Upon questioning him, they found that Thomas was incredibly uneasy and agitated, fidgeting. His answers were all very erratic, too. It was then that the police decided to take him in for further questioning. And at the station, Thomas was put through a polygraph test, which, I mean, he honestly failed. Through further intense examination, Cocorelius broke down and, uh, and the answers that investigators had been looking for just began to pour out. Now, uh, according to Thomas, he, along with three other men, all of which he named and that we know, Robin, Andrew, and Edward, who had also been the original suspects according to police, while well, they had kidnapped and lured women to a satanic chapel that had been constructed by Gecht within his own attic, in his own home. Thomas continued by describing, you know, exactly what that chapel looked like, how big it was, what they might find in there. And Thomas would also describe how Robin Gecht owned a satanic Bible, which they would recite from during ritualistic practices. From there, the police coined a name for this cult. They called them the Ripper Crew but they also went by the Chicago Rippers in reference to Jack the Ripper, the unidentified killer who terrorized the streets of London in the late 1800s, mutilating and dismembering prostitutes, much like the Ripper crew did. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a remarkable and somewhat ghastly piece of fiction written by the famous Robert Louis Stevenson. For a Jekyll and Hyde complex was the answer to the crimes which horrified and terrified London in the late 80s. The famous Jack the Ripper murders. Crimes which unfortunately have never been solved. Thomas would continue describing how Gecht and his men would kidnap these women. They would torment them and torture them in this attic chapel with knives and ice picks and other sharp objects. Gecht would lead the men in collectively raping their victims as a as a gang, then ultimately sacrificing them in the name of Satan. Thomas would also mention a box that was used during these ritualistic practices, a a trophy box that had been used to collect the severed breasts from these victims. He had mentioned that he had personally tallied as many as 15 breasts that were in the box, all of which served another purpose to this cult communion. You see, according to Thomas, the breasts were an important yet crucial piece to their satanic ritual. 
after murdering or dismembering the breasts from their victim while still alive, and reciting verses from the Satanic Bible, each member of the cult would offer up their seed. And when I say seed, what I mean is they would masturbate into the severed breast. Sometimes they would even do it into the gaping cut of the victim. And once they were finished, the men would each take turns consuming a piece of it in their satanic communion. Robin Gecht would place what remained of this body part into the trophy box, and that's, and that's what they kept. Thomas would detail all of the gruesome methods in which they would dismember their victims, one of which uh, he described very graphically as them using a piano wire to remove the breast. And he would also go on to admit that the men had killed up to 20 women under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Police would never be able to actually confirm this number, though. Thomas would also admit to the slaying of Lorraine Borowski, an act that was personally carried out by both he and his brother, and that they were both completely responsible for. According to Thomas, after choosing out of a photograph that police had lined up in front of him, among others, he had picked up the photo and he said that he and his brother had chosen to kidnap her, then also sacrifice her at that nearby Brer Rabbit Motel. As you can just about imagine, Thomas Cocorelius's confession, it, it was enough. It was enough for authorities to secure search and arrest warrants for the Ripper crew. In fact, immediately, uh, pretty much as soon as they possibly could, police had all four men under arrest. So Robin Gecht, Andrew, and Thomas Cocorelius, and even Edward Spritzer, who was only, who, he was only 20 years old at the time. These men were all taken into police custody with a $1 million bond each. Eventually, that satanic chapel that had been described, it, it was found exactly where Thomas had said in Gecht's attic. Just the way that Thomas had described it. And, you know, as I think about this, I, I, I can't even imagine the amount of shock or disgust that investigators... I can't imagine what they were experiencing as they stepped in. Among many things that they found in there, police also found a rifle that matched the one responsible for that drive-by shooting that killed Rafael Toredo. A job that they would discover later was, it was only done as a means for some quick cash. It was a hit. Um, and it was not at all meant to be connected to any of the other sacrificial or ritualistic killings at all. Today's episode was brought to you by Spotify. You like music, right? And let's face it, you love podcasts. Why not have both? On Spotify, you can listen to all of that in one place, for free. And you're not even required to go premium. Spotify is an extensive library of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcast so you never miss an episode. Download episodes to listen to offline. Easily share what you're listening to with your friends through Spotify's integrations with social platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for Whispers in the Night on the Spotify app or browse podcasts in the Your Library tab and subscribe by clicking follow so you never miss an episode. Spotify, the world's leading music streaming service. And now, your go-to for podcasts. Okay, that brings us to the conclusion of this episode. So I, I suppose that you're wondering what, what became of these men, the Ripper crew. 
Was justice served? Did they get off? Well, you know, I have good news and I have bad news. And I suppose maybe I'll start with the good news. The good news is justice was served. Andrew Cocorelius, Thomas's brother, was executed by lethal injection by the state of Illinois in 1999 at the age of 35. And I just, I just wanted to throw out a random fact. Andrew Cocorelius, he was actually the very last person to be executed in the state before a moratorium was put on the death penalty. Now, Robin Gecht, the leader of the Ripper crew, along with Edward Spritzer, still remain within the Illinois prison system, serving out the rest of their sentence. Here's where the bad news comes in. After almost four decades served in prison, um, just over half of his 70-year sentence, Thomas Cocorelius was released from prison on March 29th of 2019. He currently resides at a Christian shelter in Aurora, Illinois, that offers rehabilitation, training, and and guidance for ex-offenders. The community, though, they're, they're not having it. It brings a sad ending to such a reign of terror on on the victims and their families. For Lori Ann Borowski's mom and brother. She was my big sister. This is a day they dreaded. I'm shaking at the thought that this murder is walking free among us. Mark Borowski's older sister was only 21 years old when she was abducted, tortured, raped, and murdered by members of the so-called Ripper Crew, among them Thomas Cocorellis, who was later charged and convicted of Borowski's murder. Her murderer did not receive the justice that he deserved. Because Borowski's murder was sexually motivated, Cocorellis must register as a sex offender within 72 hours of his release. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Whispers in the Night. I, I honestly, I can't tell you just how awesome it is to know that there are still listeners like you uh, checking in to hear my latest episode. It is definitely a real treat, and it's good to know that there are like minds out there when it comes to diving into the deep, dark voids of our worlds, whether it be true crime like tonight or even the paranormal and unexplained. If you'd like to support the show, you can actually do so in a number of ways. The first and most important is by clicking that like or follow or subscribe button on whatever podcatcher that you're listening on right now. And you can also leave a five-star review. This not only helps my show to be found, but it also helps to show people how you, as my listener, how you feel about this podcast. And if you'd like to help this show out financially, you can support the show on Patreon or on Coffee. You can also buy some of my merch over on TeePublic, which I actually, I actually have a sale starting September 3rd and going through the 5th. So if you want to check out my t-shirts, my mugs, notebooks, all sorts of goodies. I think there's, a, there's tapestries in there and pillowcases. It all goes to a good cause. All of the funds will support my upgrades when it comes to equipment, as well as research, you name it. And of course, I'll leave links to all of what I've mentioned so far in my show's description. Also, um, this show is a tremendous project that I undertake independently. And I could always use a hand with um, things like scouting stories, audio engineering, voice acting, or even managing 
our social media uh, profiles. If you think that you have what it takes to do any of these, I would gladly uh, take the help. So send me a message on social media, or you can email me at whispersinthenightpodcast at gmail.com. A special thanks tonight goes out to Soren Narnia, Aaron Lillis, Q Dyer, Lindsay Smith, and Sarah Lee, uh, who all appeared in our episode's intro. And music in this episode is brought to you by Plastic Pantina and Shadow Vibe. Tune in two weeks from now for our audio fiction presentation. It's one I've been working on for a very long time, and you are going to love it. I swear, just tune in in two weeks. Anyway, thank you so much once again, and good night.